James 5, verse 13. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with uh, oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, thank you, Karen. Let's take a second and pray and ask God to help us. Father, we ask now that you would come and work in our hearts, that you would help the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, that you would help us to see and understand what you have for us in these verses, and that most of all, we would understand our own need as rebels against God's gracious purposes for us, and also to see that you have done all that's necessary for us to be renewed and saved through the death of Jesus. Help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Tim Keller, in his book on prayer, uh, at one point tells the story about a time in their life some years ago when he and his wife, Kathy, were going through quite a difficult time, and they had uh, multiple issues that they were facing in their life, and they didn't know where to turn. And throughout their marriage to this point, their prayer life together had been pretty inconsistent. And so in this instance, Kathy, in a moment of wisdom, said to her husband, to Tim, she said this, he writes in his book, Imagine that you were diagnosed with such a lethal condition that the doctor told you that you would die within hours unless you took a particular medicine, a pill every night before going to sleep. Imagine you were told that you could never miss taking the pill or you would die. Would you forget? No. It would be so crucial that you wouldn't forget. You would never miss. Well, she said to her husband, if we don't pray together to God... We're not going to make it because of all we are facing. We have to pray. We can't just let it slip our minds. I wonder how many of us think about prayer in quite such stark terms as Keller writes there in his book. Do you view prayer as something that is that essential, that is that important to your life, to your spiritual journey? You know, so often, if you've been a Christian for some time, you can't seem to carve out the time in your day, really, to even pray at all. And if that's the case with us, I think the scripture is very clear when it tells us that we should expect to to atrophy spiritually. We can't survive the journey to wholeness, the journey of the Christian life, without prayer. That's what James is writing to us about this morning. 
As we conclude this study of this letter, we see here that really, beginning in verse 7 of chapter 5, James is giving his concluding thoughts. And the concluding thoughts he gives are dominated by two ideas. First is the idea of patience, which we looked at last week. And second is the idea of prayer, which we're going to look at this morning. And really what he's doing is bookending the letter in these last few verses. If you turn back to chapter 1, in the first few verses of the letter, James wrote that we should take joy when we face trials, we should be steadfast, we should be patient, and that we should ask God for wisdom when we need it. In other words, he begins this letter by talking about patience and prayer, and he ends the letter by talking about patience and prayer. So these two ideas, patience and prayer, go together. They're very important in the spiritual life. We've seen again and again and again each week that James's main point is that God is committed to making each of those who are following Jesus whole people. As he puts it in verse 4 of chapter 1, people who are whole and complete, lacking in nothing. And as we studied James, we've seen that that journey towards wholeness involves multiple things, but perhaps more essential than anything else is gaining more and more ability and strength in these two areas of patience and prayer. They are essential in the journey towards wholeness, in the journey towards joyous integrity. They're essential if we're going to survive the trials that come upon us as followers of Jesus in life. And so as we wrap up, let's look at how James concludes this letter, okay? Here's the main point this morning. Prayer is the most powerful weapon we possess on the journey. Very simple. Prayer is the most powerful weapon we possess on the journey. Three ideas flowing out of that point. James talks about the individual at prayer first. Second, the elders at prayer. And then third, the community at prayer. The individual, the elders, the community at prayer. That's the outline for all of you note takers. Here we go. First, the individual at prayer. Verse 13, you see it there. James Ask this question, is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. He writes here that we should pray in bad times and in good times, right? First, in bad times. Is anyone suffering? Let him pray. Prayer should be a sort of spiritual first response team when we face problems, pain, or difficulties in our lives. I think that's probably an understandable idea for most of us. Most of us, if we're Christians, maybe even if we're not Christians, I would hazard to guess, pray more when we are suffering more. And I think that's a completely understandable and valid thing to do, by the way. And my guess is, if you're anything like me, typically the way you pray when you're suffering is, God, please take this away as soon as possible, right? That's definitely a fine thing to pray. There's much biblical evidence for that sort of prayer. That's a prayer we should offer to God when we're going through bad times. But I think it's also fair to pray not just that God would take our sufferings away when we're going through difficulty, but also that in our suffering, that in our difficulty, God would use the pain to mold us, to transform us, to teach us, to make us more whole as we go through such and such a trial or struggle. One commentator on James, Alec Montier, writes this. He says, prayer may not remove the affliction, but it can certainly transform it. Prayer may not remove the affliction, but it can certainly transform it. Listen, this is good news. This is one of the great things about being a Christian. 
If you're not a Christian, you need to understand. This is one of the great things about being a Christian. If you are a Christian, you need to be reminded. This is one of the great things about being a Christian. God, listen, God is available for you. No matter what you're going through in your life. He's available for you in the loss of a child. He is available for you when you're having hard times in your marriage. He is available for you when you're facing difficulty in your work. He's available for you when you lack a sufficient income. God is available for you when you're in a confusing relationship, when you're struggling with mental illness or with addiction or with depression. God is available. Is anyone among you suffering? Pray. Prayer in bad times. But also, James calls us to pray in good times. Look at what he says next. Is anyone cheerful? Happy, joyful, let him sing praise. That word there, idea of singing praise is really just prayer put to music. The same idea is in James's mind here. And so again, he's exhorting us and the original audience to pray in all circumstances here, in good times and in bad times. Everything in our lives should be seasoned with prayer. Think about it like this. This is grilling season, right? So imagine, you know, Friday night, Saturday night, you've got a glass of wine, you're out if you're a male, or maybe a beer, whatever you want, water, whatever's good for you, Dr. Pepper, you're out grilling, and you're grilling a nice, juicy steak. Now, in my experience, you want to season, and this is what I do at least, you want to season both sides of the steak in order to make it, you know, nice and tasty all over. But oftentimes, I'll only season one side and forget to season the other side when I flip the steak. Think about prayer like that. You know, your life is the big steak on the grill. Prayer is the seasoning. And one side of the stake are the good things that are happening, and the other side of the stake are the bad things that are happening. Paul, or James is calling us here, Paul does too, <laughs> Jesus does too, the Bible calls us to season our entire lives, both sides of the stake, so to speak, with prayer as often and as much as we can. The pastor Ligon Duncan has said this, The Christian life is to be consecrated by prayer to God so that every pleasure is hallowed and every pain is sanctified. Whatever we are facing in life, whatever circumstances are coming our way, we are to reflect them upwards to God the Father in prayer, knowing that he will hear us and respond. When I was a high school student, I took some tennis lessons. If you've ever played tennis with me, you know those lessons didn't go so well. But I did take some tennis lessons. And one of the first things that happened when I started taking tennis lessons is my instructor set up one of those tennis ball machines, you know, that fires the balls at you on the other side of the court and then set me up on the opposite side of the net with a racket. And I think my dad, like, paid him to do this as a cruel joke. He turned the thing up. I'm telling you, it was, like, ludicrous speed. Full blast. And these tennis balls start coming at me like I'm playing Roger Federer or something. I mean, boom, 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 boom. And really, almost from the very beginning, all I could do was just kind of hold the racket. Try not to get smacked in the nose and just try and reflect them upward as best I could, hoping that nothing shelled me, right? There's going to be no permanent damage after this lesson was over. That's sort of the way we should view prayer in our lives. Sometimes you feel like you're about to get shelled or you're getting shelled with all sorts of things coming at you at 100 miles an hour. The journey towards wholeness, following Jesus, living a life of faith involves doing your best and growing in your ability to reflect those things upward to God in prayer. 
the individual at prayer is such an important thing if we're going to follow and trust in the Lord. The great reformer, John Calvin, has written this so beautifully. Here's what he says. I I love this. He says, there is no time at which God does not invite us to himself. That's such a profound and beautiful idea. There is no time at which God does not invite us to himself. Can you just consider for a second how amazing that is? I mean, think about it. The king of the universe who rules over everything, whether it's happening a billion light years away or whether it's the cells in your own body, that kind of God has given us a full access VIP pass to his throne room. In other words, the truth about who God is and how God relates to us in the gospel is what fuels our prayer life. It's one of the things I love most about the Christian faith. It's distinct from any other world religion or world philosophy in that it says that God does not wait for us to get our act together before we can approach him. No, in Jesus, God has made the way open and available through the death of Christ and his blood shed on the cross for our rebellion against God and through Jesus' resurrection unto new life. Through that event, through that event, the good news of the gospel is that the way to God is open for anyone and everyone. You don't have to wait until, until you're like, you know, a spiritual superstar. You don't have to wait until you feel like you've overcome this issue or that issue. You don't have to wait until you have a perfect relationship with your spouse or until you feel like you're an A-plus parent or A-plus child. No, there is no time, no time at which God does not invite us to himself. It's a beautiful idea. Imagine that, imagine this. Imagine that you as a, a child are adopted That might be true for some of you. That's a great thing. You're you're adopted out of a, let's say, a a very terrible and abusive situation. And you're adopted into just a great family with a great mom and a great father. And they nurture you over time to emotional and psychological and physical health. How are you going to feel towards them? What's your disposition going to be? Will you not love them? Would you not cling to them? Would you not want to be with them? Listen, it's the same with God in the story of the gospel. What God has done for us in the gospel is rescue us out of darkness and evil. Can you see the power of the gospel in your life? Can you sense the delight of God the Father for you? When you can sense that, when that is reverberating in your spiritual bones, then prayer becomes something that isn't forced but is natural and fluid in your experience. James calls the individual, the individual to pray as a result of what God has done for his children in the gospel. He asks a third question there in verse 14. He said, is anyone suffering? Is anyone cheerful? And then thirdly, is anyone among you sick? And this signals a little bit of a transition. And so we move first from the individual at prayer to thinking now, secondly, about the elders at prayer, okay? Okay. He says, is anyone among you sick? Let him or her call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And then he continues in verse 15. Now, the big point there is very clear. The big point is simply this. The elders of a given community of faith must be people of prayer 
if the community is to be healthy. The elders in a church must be people of prayer if the church is to be healthy. That's the point of verses 14 and 15. But there's some really difficult interpretive issues here in these two verses, maybe the hardest in all of James. And listen, I want you to be able to understand your Bibles well. And I want you to grow in your ability to interpret what the Scripture says because words matter and sentences matter and clauses matter. And so I want to just take a second and ask a couple of questions to help us understand especially what James is getting at here in verses 14 and 15. If we want to understand this rightly, there's four questions, okay? I'm going to go through these quick. Don't freak out. But a little bit of, you know, serious Bible teaching here for a second. Uh, 14 and 15, four questions. The first question is, what kind of sickness is in mind in verse 14? Look there in the verse. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and they will pray over him. Well, the sick person here, that word sick refers to physical sickness. So it's not some sort of spiritual issue. It's a physical illness, okay? And the idea is that this person is really, really sick. How do we know that? We know that because the word that is used of the elders, that word there, pray over, that's one word in the original language. And it's the only time in the entire New Testament that this word is used. And it means that they are so, you know, the elders are, so to speak, to lean over this person who is, so to speak, on his or her deathbed and pray over them. So the fact that that verb is used implies that this sick person is super sick. They're like deathbed level sick. They have deep physical issues. So that's the kind of sickness that's in mind there in verse 14. Okay. A second question is this, what is the role of anointing? You see that there in verse 14? Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders. Let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. What does that mean? Okay. Anointing typically has two general functions. It either has a medicinal function or a spiritual function. Now, in this text, it's almost certain that anointing is intended to be seen in its spiritual function. It's a spiritual and symbolic act. How do we know that? Well, we know that because if it were a medicinal act, it's unlikely that James would call the elders. He would probably call a physician or a doctor. So this isn't like, you know, um, essential oil sort of thing. Although I'm fine with essential oils. Don't get all mad at me and send me an email about how great essential oils are. Um, this is a spiritual act, okay? It's a, it's a physical act with a symbolic purpose. The elders are called to do this because the office of elder is a spiritual office. It's an office of prayer. And so the people administering the anointing help us to understand the purpose of the anointing. The sick person is to be anointed because it's a symbol that this person is being set apart for God's special concern and attention. That's what we mean there when when James says, anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. It's not any sort of like healing ointment. It's merely a symbolic act saying we are going to particularly set this person before God in prayer. Okay? Third question. And this is probably the most difficult one. Look in verse 15. So they've anointed him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him or her up. What does that mean? That's the third question. What is meant by the prayer of faith will save? Now, just so you know, faith healers, quote unquote, typically will use a verse like this if they care about the Bible at all, which most of them don't. But if they want to use the Bible, they'll typically use a verse like this to say something like, 
you can be healed if your faith is strong enough. And if you're not healed, it's because your faith wasn't strong enough. You need to just strengthen your faith a little bit more, and then maybe God will do something good for you. It's a wicked, evil, terrible teaching, by the way, that should be hated. Um, it's not true. It's a lie. And that's not what's going on here. Uh, it's not going, what's going on here because the prayer of faith, clearly in the text, isn't referring to the prayer of the sick person. It's referring to the prayer of the elders. That's the immediately preceding verse, and that makes it very, very clear. So at least we can say that this isn't saying that the sick person needs to have a certain level of faith in order to be healed. The prayer of faith is the prayer of the elders gathered among the person praying for them. So that's one thing to get. And also I think it's important to understand that when James says the prayer of faith will save, I think that it's best to understand that word save in a physical sense here. That is, they will be physically healed. So it's not referring to like spiritual salvation. It's referring to physical healing. The word save can be used in the New Testament in that way. It's used very often in the New Testament, especially in Jesus's ministry, to refer to physical healing. And so what's going on here is that we're being led to believe that as the elders and as the community of faith prays with trust in Jesus Christ for sick people, God sometimes, perhaps even oftentimes, will answer the prayers by healing that person's physical illness. I don't think we can say that James is teaching that that always happens, though. I mean, just in the prior chapter, James has said that we shouldn't do anything unless the Lord wills it, right? If the Lord wills, we would do this and that. So it's not a one-to-one correspondence. It's not as if God will always heal when someone, even an elder, asks for it, right? Prayer for healing, listen, prayer for healing is always to be qualified by the recognition that God's will in the matter is supreme. To put it another way, in prayer, you do not bind God, but you beseech God. You know, Paul in 2 Corinthians 12 gives us a great example. He had a thorn in the flesh and he asked God to take it away again and again and again. And what does God say to Paul? No. He says, no, I'm not going to take it away so that my strength might be perfected and magnified in your weakness. So when you read there that the prayer of faith will save, it doesn't mean anytime you pray with genuine faith for a sick person, they're going to automatically be healed. However, it does mean that that certainly is possible should God in his sovereign wisdom choose to answer your prayer in that way. More on that in just a second, okay? But the last question we need to ask, so we've talked about the kind of sickness that's in mind, what anointing means, what the prayer of faith means, and then lastly, what is the relationship between sickness and sin? You see that there at the end of 15? The prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, the Lord will raise him up. If he has committed sins, he will be forgiven Therefore, etc., etc. Let me just say this. The relationship between sickness and sin is almost never a direct relationship. What do I mean? I mean this. You can almost never say, well, the reason that person got cancer is because he cheated on his taxes in 2004. Or the reason that person has AIDS is because he was engaged in a homosexual lifestyle. You cannot say that. God does not, so to speak, punish sin through some sort of one-to-one correspondence with sickness. And that's very clear in Jesus' ministry. In John chapter 9, 1 through 5, the Pharisees, the religious authorities of Jesus' day, have this blind man before them, and they ask Jesus, Jesus, who sinned, this guy or his parents, that he was born blind? So you see what's in their mind? They're assuming that because this person is blind because of some sin in his life or in his family's life. 
And Jesus says, it's neither. But that God's glory might be made known to you, I'm going to heal him. So sickness and sin, there's not always a one-to-one correspondence between them, okay? But, listen, but in the complexity of our lives and in the complexity of God's work for our wholeness, there is some kind of relationship between confession of sins, forgiveness of sins, and physical illness and healing. So it's illegitimate to say, I'm sick or you're sick with cancer because you cheated on your taxes. But, but physical sickness should always cause us to reflect on our spiritual condition and seek to repent and believe the gospel. Okay, I think that's the best way to read what James is saying here in verse 15. So those are some difficult interpretive questions. And as we've gone through those, I hope it gives you a better idea of what exactly James is getting at. But again, here's the big picture idea, okay? James is reminding us that the Christian life is a life lived in community. And that the community, oftentimes represented by the elders in a church, are to be devoted to praying for one another. Especially when you are experiencing illness and sickness. The main idea is that prayer is supremely powerful. It's the most powerful weapon we possess, And so very practically, listen to me, if you have major problems or needs or sickness in your life or in your family's life, you should pray for those things. And furthermore, you should also ask us, me and Tim and Alan, as your elders here at Christ Church to pray for you. This enables you to live a life of authenticity, for one, and biblical community, for two. And it's also just commanded here in the Bible, and it's always good to follow God's commands. So God has given you elders to love you and to care for you, and part of the way they do that is by praying over you by anointing you with oil. I've done that on multiple occasions, both here at Christ Church and in previous churches I've served in. And let me just say as a side note here, um, when our oldest, Nate, was a little, little bitty boy, he had a number of physical symptoms that Marianne and I were quite concerned about. And I remember very vividly, and I know Marianne does too, we, we were in the hospital with Nate. He was about a year old, maybe 18 months old, two years old. And the elders of our prior church came and prayed over him and anointed him with oil in the name of the Lord, exactly like James calls the elders to do. And Nate's fine. He's a great kid, very healthy. He can almost beat me in a race, but not quite. And, and I'm convinced to this day that part of the reason that Nate has been healed from some of his early physical issues is because God chose to answer the prayers of the elders in that circumstance. I have seen multiple circumstances in my time as a pastor where the elders have laid hands on people, anointed them with oil and prayed for them, and God has chosen to heal. So if you're in a situation where you need healing, come and ask the elders to pray for you, just as James lays it out here. We would be happy to do that. So the individual at prayer the elders at prayer, and then last, real quick, the community at prayer, verses 16 through 18. So in 16, James is expanding on his prior teaching about the prayer of elders to write about a general principle about the prayer of Christians just in general, together. And you see here again that James is really concerned with fellowship. He says, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. In other words, the best way to move forward in our church family, in your Christian relationships, the best way to move forward when there is estrangement or when there are problems 
or when there's bitterness or frustration. The best way to move forward is to pray for and with the person with whom you have issues. And so in a sense, James is calling you here to humble yourself before the Lord enough that you can go to a person whom you believe has wronged you or whom you have wronged yourself and pray with them about the issue that's causing disruption. So can you do that? I mean, let's just be honest with ourselves for a minute. Can you do that? Uh, who are you estranged with or who do you have issues with? Or who, with whom is there a little bit of relational friction right now in your life? Part of what it means to follow Jesus and become a whole person is to be willing to humble yourself and go to that person and confess your sin to them to be able to see what might I have brought to the table that's caused damage here and then pray over those issues. And so James is calling us to do that. The Holy Spirit is calling us to do that together through James. And he gives this example of Elijah there in 17 and 18. And that example is intended to help us understand that normal people's prayers are supremely powerful. Notice that he emphasizes that Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. He's not saying Elijah, this prophet that none of you wimps could ever be. He's saying Elijah was just like us. He's a normal dude. When Jezebel the queen threatened him, he didn't stand up, you know, and say, I'll stand here to the... No, he took tail and ran. 1 Kings 19. And he said, God, I'm all by myself. Come on, help me out here. Elijah was just like us. And yet he prayed fervently and faithfully and amazing things happened. It didn't rain for three years and six months. And then when he prayed again, it began to rain. The point is, Elijah was nothing special. He just prayed consistently and simply and powerfully. Prayer packs a powerful punch. I grew up in the panhandle of Texas, as some of you know, in Amarillo, and spent a lot of my life driving around West Texas. And I love that place, but I got to tell you, it's ugly. It's an ugly place. And uh, there's not really any reason why any like when I go to Odessa, where my dad lives, to this day, I'm like, why would anyone ever settle here? Like, it makes no sense. And there's one reason. The reason is because of what's underneath, right? It's not because, like, of the beauty of the landscape. No, it's nasty. The reason is because the Permian Basin is full of more oil than just about any other place in the world. So what looks really unappealing and uninspiring on the surface is actually remarkably important and powerful. You know, prayer is kind of like the West Texas Caprock. There's nothing, you know, there's nothing really cool. There's nothing super impressive about the idea of prayer. But it's actually the most powerful weapon we possess. It, it has great resources waiting to be tapped. A huge potency to release. Martin Lloyd-Jones, the great pastor, once wrote, The only urge which should never be resisted is the urge to pray. That might be a little bit of preacher hyperbole. But it's a great point anyway. The only urge which should never be resisted is the urge to pray. And that's what James is calling us to here as he concludes. He's calling you as individuals to pray. He's calling the elders to pray. And he's calling us as a church family to pray. Now, as we wrap up, okay, I want to just give you a couple of really practical pieces of advice by way of application. So hang with me for about three more minutes. And let's just answer, how can we pray better? Now, there's a million ways. Some of you undoubtedly are much better prayers than I am. And um, some of you have great ideas in your own life and great practices that you've honed over the years that have helped you learn to pray well. 
But here's a couple of ideas that I had and thought about as I was thinking this week about prayer. A couple of things, really four things, and then we're done. Okay, I'll go quick. Very practical advice. How can you pray? First, find a regular time and place. And that's not essential to praying, but for most of us, it's important and helpful. Depending on the more how schedule-oriented as opposed to people-oriented you are or how task-oriented or how type A you are, that might be more or less helpful. For me, that's been very helpful to try, and I don't do this as consistently as I should, but to try and pray in around the same time of my day and around the same place. So find a quiet place. Find a place where you're able to focus and just start with five, ten minutes of concentrated prayer to God. And put that in your Google Calendar and set an alert on your phone so that you remember. Use technology for your advantage. Okay, second, pray scripture. I talked about this last week. I gave you Colossians 1 and Ephesians 1 and 3 as examples. Another example is what's called the daily office. Some of you might know about the daily office, depending on your spiritual background. It's something that the church historically has used, especially, you know, Medieval monks came up with the daily office and would pray seven times a day in their monasteries, and each prayer was a little different. And the daily office has been modified by Reformed Protestants so that there's multiple ways to do it, but you can just Google daily office and come up with a really simple three times a day prayer routine. And typically it can go anywhere from five to 15 minutes per time. And the idea is to pray when you get up, to pray after lunch, and to pray in the evening maybe before bed. And each time you pray a different psalm and it gives you some liturgy. So depending on your liturgical bent, that might be a helpful thing. Google prayer chart. Google use technology to help you. But praying scripture via the daily office has been helpful for me. Okay, third, pray with each other. Prayer in community helps you pray better by yourself. For one, it gives you accountability. For two, it allows you to hear someone else and learn from them. For three, it provides an opportunity to build loving relationships and vulnerability with others. Our missional community groups are designed to largely be places of prayer for one another. So that's a great way for you to plug in to pray in community. And then last, I've already talked about this a little bit, ask the elders to pray for you and let us come and do so. Write on your response card on the back where there's a prayer request spot how we can pray for you. And we will commit, I assure you, to doing that regularly and fervently before the Lord. Make use of the community in which God has placed you as we seek to move forward together in the journey towards wholeness by becoming people of prayer. Let's pray.